Amen. It's me again. <laughs> you don't need to clap. No, 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 no. Uh, let me tell you, these songs this week, they just preached the sermon. You may be thinking, then let's go home. But um, I encourage you, every week we print the, the names of the songs we do in the bulletin. And this week, I mean, I'm listening to these songs and this is it. Uh, spoiler alert. This was Saul's problem. Saul's problem is he said, I am weak. I know I'm weak. And then he left it at that. He left out the part that God's spirit was strong in him. So take these songs in. When we worship, take all these elements and take them with you. When you leave here, go back and let them reinforce um, what what you've heard in the sermon. It's great stuff. So yes, I am here, I'm Matt, as I said, one of the pastors, if you're, if you're new to us. This week, a world of emotions and emotional response to, uh, to Saul for me this week as I'm reading this story, as I'm fleshing this out. Um, so I start with sort of righteous indignation and pride, you know, oh, Saul, you fool, how, how could you be so unfaithful? Um, to, uh, then I, I, you know, I start to sympathize, you know, oh, poor pathetic Saul, and, and then by the end of the week, I'm going... Oh man, I am Saul. And so as we enter to the story of the king, I realize this week, I realize that, um, man, Saul's whole issue is one of trust. It, it's not just one of laziness or weakness or, you know, all these kinds of things. It's not even necessarily one specifically of, of disobedience or rebellion. It's, I think at its core, it is one of trust. And what we see this week is the consequences of a failure to trust in God. What we see this week in this story, this incredibly powerful story, it's amazing. I I read it and I go, somebody needs to make a movie about this, but I I know they'll mess it up. (laughs) But what we see here is an incredible tragedy. Because in the story, we witness the final disintegration of a man's character and calling. We watch him poured out and spent. And this was a man who just could not fully trust his God. And what does that mean? I mean, it's easy to say, trust God. You know, you should go trust God. Okay, I'll trust God. But what does that mean? He could not trust in who God made him to be. He wouldn't believe it. Speaking as a man, I know that's a big thing for a lot of men. He would not trust in who God made him to be. He would not trust in who God called him to be or what God called him to do. He simply could not trust, and therefore, he simply could not and would not obey. So today, we see this about our king. He expects and deserves our trust. And our trust is manifested in our obedience without concern about or regard for what will happen thereafter and the consequences we might face. So with that in mind, let's get into the text. 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting at verse 1. 
And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out up out of Egypt. So let me give you a little context for that. The Amalekites met Israel, if you remember, uh, when they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years and they were released, they were freed, God set them free, and they were heading from Egypt to the promised land. And they encountered this attacking nation called the Amalekites. And these people were descendants of Esau. You remember that? Remember who Esau was? He was the brother of Jacob, the one from whom the birthright had been taken. That's important. So they attacked Israel on their way from Egypt to Sinai in the promised land. In Exodus 17, you can read about it. And it says this, they became mortal enemies of Israel. And God said that Israel would have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So picture this, all right? Jacob's name was changed to Israel, right? So Israel is marching from Egypt to do what? Claim the birthright. So the Amalekites weren't just bad guys that were trying to take advantage of the Israelites and steal their stuff. They believed they had moral authority. They were trying to stop Jacob from claiming Esau's blood birthright. And here's the problem. Here's the problem with that. We may look at that and feel some sympathy, but Jacob stole the birthright. And, you know, I always had problems with that when I was a kid, but it doesn't seem right. Jacob stole it and God supported it. Well, here's the deal. It wasn't it wasn't Esau's birthright, and it wasn't Jacob's birthright. It was God's birthright. And it wasn't blood that made it valid. It wasn't birth order that made that birthright valid. It was God's authority and God's choice. And God chose Jacob, and Esau stood against him for generations And the Amalekites were bent on keeping Israel from entering the promised land and claiming that divine birthright. And in Deuteronomy 25, God says, you, Israel, listen to this, shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You, Israel, must wipe them from the face of the earth. Generations before he he proclaims that. And now it says, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Put them under the ban. Now, this is scary language for us, especially since 9-11. You're going to start hearing that holy war language. Put them under the ban. God command, God's command to devote these things to him and his judgment not selectively, but completely. That's what putting them under the ban means, okay? You know, a lot of things were devoted to God. God didn't just say, go destroy all that stuff. God said, devote it to me. Because there was stuff in there you'd want. There was good stuff in there. He said, no, 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 no. Devote all that to me. And sometimes you devote, God called for things to be devoted for him for blessing, for grace, for mercy. Uh, uh, Samuel, Samuel was devoted to God. For God's purposes, as his priest, as his prophet. But God says for the Amalekites to devote them to destruction, to put them under the ban, not selectively, but completely. And let me tell you why he made this command. Remember that all the stuff that's going on in the 
Old Testament is alluding to, it's pointing to spiritual realities. It's, it's God's baby talk is what, is what John Calvin calls it. It's God teaching us through these objects and through these activities and through these endeavors what the spiritual reality is and foreshadowing what is to come. And so what he's given Israel is a very real concrete thing, a land that he has promised them. And he's given to them based on his promise to Abraham that Abraham's faith would be counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham, you have trusted me. And not because you're better than anybody else or not because you're not a sinner, but because you have trusted me, I will make you the father of a people and that people will become a great nation greater than the sands, the number of the sands on the seashore and through that nation, the nations of the world will be blessed. And he sent him where? To the land of promise. In some sense, back to the garden, to the place where they would have perfect fellowship with him. And in that land could be no other God, no other religion, no other idolatries, no compromise of God's holiness. So people living in that land or threatening that land were utterly destroyed. There were other wars that Israel had outside of the land where, where they took spoils and they saved some of them and they utilized some of them as you would expect. But when it was inside the promised land... They were to vote all those things for destruction, to prevent syncretism, to prevent other religions from infiltrating and diluting and diminishing their relationship with the one true God. And so he devotes them to destruction, puts them under the ban. And here comes the verse that makes me mad that every time I preach, he gives me these verses. He gets David and Goliath and I get kill the women and children. (laughs) here comes the verse and this verse I'm about to read for many people is the deal breaker for them in Christianity for them in a belief in God do not spare them God says but kill both man and woman child and infant ox and sheep camel and donkey He says, annihilate them, wipe them off the face of the earth. And so I think it's important we stop here for a moment before we continue with the story. Because as I said, for a lot of us, we struggle with this, of course. And there's clearly reasons we do. Because in human terms, we have this real problem with this. And for many people, it's a huge stumbling block. And it's the thing that that, that causes them to not even believe in God. Or certainly not to believe in the Jewish God. Or the Christian God. So I want to speak to it. Here's the truth. God is in this moment bringing down judgment. Period. And there is no defense and he's not doing it for their greater good because they would have suffered more if he didn't mercifully take their lives. He is judging them. And we struggle with that idea altogether. We just don't like the idea of judgment. In fact, the number one thing that's held up as a defense against any moral or ethical assertion about how people should live or act is not a defense against the action. It is this. Don't judge me. 
Who are you to judge? And that is perfectly understandable in human terms. In horizontal relationships, where we're all equals, we're all equally sinful, none of us has a right to look down our nose at another person. We all have the capacities for sin. It makes perfect sense that we're not to judge. Scripture talks about it. Judge not, lest you be judged. Jesus says, let he who's not sin cast the first stone. Clearly, in our horizontal relationships, uh, it makes sense that we don't like the idea as ju- of judgment. As flawed, and hear these words, as flawed, finite creatures, that's an important word, we do not have the right to judge. We do not have the right to seek vengeance or to declare holy war. We do not possess that authority. But here's the thing. God is not flawed. God is not finite. And God is not a creature. He is the creator He is without sin, perfect in His love. And what that means is this. He cares for His creation more than you and I ever will. He loves you more than you know how to love yourself, infinitely more. And you know what? It strikes me as I read this and I consider my own arrogance in judging Him over what He judges. First of all, it's ironic to me that the creation is judging the Creator for judging the creation. And it also strikes me that I never cared about these poor children until I read this story. And that I don't seem to mourn and weep over the 100,000 children who die every day in the world. For all kinds of preventable reasons. I don't care about them the way he does. I don't care about them other than theoretically when we have conversations about whether or not I need to obey God. But God knew their names the moment he decreed their existence from the foundations of the earth. He knew the number of hairs on their heads. He knew how they would suffer. He knew how the effects of the sin of Adam would corrupt them and would put them in a world where they would die of these horrible things. He was the one that in that moment authored the plan of redemption and offered up the sacrifice. And put real flesh and bones on the answer to injustice in the world. And I wag my finger at him from my little place of indifference. And I challenge not only his justice, but his love. Who am I? If those children were slaughtered, he knew of it and he mourned it more than I ever will. He knew the reasons for it. He knew what would happen to their souls better than I ever will understand in this life. When I become a Christian, when I sign off on my relationship with Christ, when I accept him as my Lord and my Savior and my King, I trust The God who deserves my trust. And it is preposterous for me, and I'm speaking for me, to point my finger at my Creator who loved me so much and cause Him, require Him, demand that He defend Himself to me. 
The reality is God does judge. And God forgives. And God redeems because it is those things that he and he alone has the prerogative to do. And he alone has the knowledge and the wisdom and the power and the love to do it. When we consider the whole story, which God can do, the whole history, the whole counsel of Scripture, we see that God does lots of things. Sometimes God commands obedience to death and His followers die when they obey. Paul and the apostles and and countless people that have trusted God to death and have indeed died. Others, God calls To obey unto death, but he delivers. Think of Daniel. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Sometimes he calls for the destruction of people or things. Think of Joshua going into the promised land and laying waste to these nations, these idolatrous nations. And he really does it. And other times he calls for it, but he delivers the people. Think Jonah and Nineveh. God knows what He's doing. He understands the redemptive story as it plays out. And in all of it, in every bit of it, the expectation is obedience. And here's one truth that if you hear nothing else, you should hear, and that is this. Very simple. The God who never changes, and by the way, that's why He regrets things He's done in the Scripture, things like that, is because He doesn't change. It's because he will not cut Saul slack for breaching his character. For being a king but not being king. He never changes. And because of that, here's what I know. I know that every time without question, obedience brings redemption. Every time... Obedience brings redemption. Now, does that mean if I obey that I will not suffer in this life? Does that mean if I obey God, He blesses me and makes my life easy? Absolutely not. In my obedience, I might come up hard against the corruptions and, 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 and weaknesses and frailties and sins of this world and suffer in this life. But here is what I know. When I obey, the response of that, uh, the response of God is redemption. And yet, I wasn't even capable of obeying. And God, even in His justice and His mercy and His love, had a plan for that. And Christ became sin for me, and He became my obedience. And He saved me. So, in our struggle to accept God's right to judge, we betray some things. We betray a failure to appreciate the offense of our sin. We betray our failure to appreciate and trust in the transcendence of His perfection and of His divine right to rule over His creation. His judgments are perfect. And here's the deal. When we encounter these stories, rather than getting lost in those struggles... We're much better served to learn from their severity. Why would God do that? And we should remember this. The one who, on whom he administered the most awful and violent and ferocious judgment was himself. 
That's the rest of the story. Through his son, for those he loved, he ultimately waged holy war for us and appeased his own righteous wrath by devoting his own son to destruction for the sake of our sins and our idolatry. At its foundation, all holy war is spiritual. What did Jesus say? Our struggle is not against, or what did the scripture say? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And we see that in the work of Jesus. The second point I want to make about this particular thing is this. And I actually got this from my friend Margot. Great insight. When God calls us to devote something to destruction, maybe it's a sin, maybe it's a struggle, whatever it is, we cannot leave any part of it still standing. That's the point. We cannot determine which parts of those things are inconsequential or innocuous in the grand schemes of things. And that's what they were doing. They were trying to justify keeping certain things. And this, by the way, is what gets people who fall into notorious sin. This is how it happens right here. And I can speak to that myself. I get that. You have a sin, you have a struggle, you have an idolatry, and you don't completely devote it to destruction. You hold back those things that you think maybe you can still hold on to and take pleasure in, in hopes that they won't have any real consequences. You just look at the catalog, or no one will know, or it's a sinless crime. They must be devoted fully to destruction. And all these things, everything we're talking about, are, is, are fundamentally issues of Trust. So with that in mind, let's continue. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. I guess their army got a little bit bigger. From 600 to 200,000 and 10,000. He now had an overwhelming force. And let me tell you what the problem with this is, the danger of this is. He started with the 600 and the one son who went up and, and, and ran off all the Philistines. Now he has 200,000 and he is the dominant force. He's the overwhelming force. And what does that do? It allows him to fall into the trap of self-reliance. And so we continue. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait, uh, uh, lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel that came, uh, that came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And we're not exactly sure why, how the Kenites showed them kindness. We know that Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. Uh, we know there are a few little indications and hints here and there that they had some kind of relationship. But, um, but we also know that the name Kenite meant um, uh, uh, smith. They were metal workers. And you remember when Israel was going to face the Philistines and they had no weapons and they had to convert their, lawn, their, their, their farming tools into weapons? So maybe there was a political loyalty here with the Kenites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he took Agag, the king of, of the Amalekites, alive. And this was great. When we were doing our personal worship, when Didi was reading this with our daughter, Rachel, they're reading down through this part. And right at that point, Rachel goes, oh. And devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. Now, wait a minute. In a minute, it says he didn't do that. Well, yes, he did. He, he, he proclaimed it. I devote thee to destruction. 
But Saul and his people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Oh my gosh, I am Saul. God says, devote this to destruction. Okay, I'm going to devote it to destruction. I'm going to devote all of it to destruction, except for this. We just, that, you don't really need, I mean, what's a sheep? Who needs a sheep? You know, note, by the way, they didn't save the children. And they keep taking everything and everything and everything back and back and back until all that's left is that which is worthless, and they devote that to God. I am Saul. They did not trust him. They only trusted themselves. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. Let me tell you something. There's a critical moment in this passage right here. That moment where God regrets having called Saul to be king and Samuel cries out all night as, as God's prophet, Samuel emoted with God. He was God's voice to the people and he experienced God's emotion as he emoted those things. And so God and Samuel were one in their, in their, their regret and their grief over this. When we do our personal worship every week, we seek to remember God. We seek to look into the passage and say, what am I learning about the nature and character of God? Well, let me tell you what this says right here. God regrets. Amuel is angry and cries out in anguish all night. They mourned the disintegration of this king, this man, this nation he represented. And why do you mourn something? Why do you regret? Why do you grieve? Why do you get angry? Why do you mourn? Because you love. Because you care. This is central. Central to why we can and should trust our God. Because He loves us. Because He cares for His creation. And He does not take these things lightly. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And I want you to think about this for a minute. Like God going to Adam after he had enjoyed some fruit. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. And turned and passed on the way down, and he turned and passed and went on the way down, and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And now, this is when Rachel says, not exactly. Saul had completely rationalized his clearly rebellious actions. He had completely convinced himself, or at least was pretending, at least he thought he had done enough to be able to claim on paper that he had obeyed God's command to devote these people to destruction. 
I am Saul. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? The evidence of his disobedience was clear, like Adam knowing that he was naked. It was obvious that something was wrong. Saul said they, read into that, Eve did it, have brought them from the Amalekites. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the the people, those people, Eve over there, they spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop, enough. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord's anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord said to you, sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag back, uh, the king of, of, of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction, quote, But the people took to spoil sheep and oxen, the best things devoted to destruction. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to your God in Gilgal. Your God. I did what I was supposed to do, but what could I do about the people? They took these things that were good and kept them for themselves. The best of the things, devoted for destruction. But they did it to sacrifice them to you, Lord. I pursued wealth. I pursued power. I pursued money. I pursued comfort. But I did it to your glory, Lord. Because when I did it, I told them at the board meeting that it was all for your glory. When I was interviewed at the press conference, I said at the end, I give all the glory to Jesus. And God says, but I didn't send you for the wealth, that wealth. I didn't send you for that fame. That that wasn't where I sent you. And we do not trust. I'm going to tell you as as a guy, speaking to you men, when I read those words, though you are little in your own eyes, I hear the voice of so many men in our community, in our culture. We had a dad's meeting several months ago, and I might have mentioned this before, but at that dad's meeting, uh, the question was raised, how many of you feel like a failure? And every one of those dads, 30 plus, raised his hand. And these were good men, good, honest, hardworking men, all feeling like failures. Why, the question was asked, because I just don't have enough time. There's not enough time in the day to do everything that needs to be done. I just don't. There's not enough money to pay all the bills. There's not enough. There's not enough. All these things, all these distractions, all this busyness. Somebody said to me after the service, Billy Graham said, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And so many men, I want to speak to you today and say, hear God's words here. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not 
his child and an heir to his throne. A man created in his image, given a calling, giving a role, giving responsibilities. Aren't you all those things? And don't you have the very power of the God who made you to accomplish that? So do not be consumed by a lack of trust in the one who made you. So then the final blow comes from Samuel in the form of sort of an oracle. He says, has the Lord as great uh, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Does God care about your religious activities more than your obedience to your trust in Him? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, and here it comes. He has also rejected you from being king. He could not trust. So he could not obey. And first in chapter 13, he lost his legacy. God said, your family will not rule over this nation. And now, finally, through his continued lack of trust and his resulting, uh, resulting disobedience, Saul loses his rule. He loses his calling. How do we become disobedient? Let me tell you something. It's not all at once. Nobody sets out in a given day to say, Today I shall be disobedient to the Lord. We nibble away at the edges of God's image through our mistrust. Until it looks like nothing of Him. It looks nothing like His creation. And it seems like an alien concept to us. In fact, we can even get morally indignant about it. We can get so lost, we can so lose the image of God and the wisdom of His Word that we actually get indignant when we encounter it and we can make idols of issues. Sexual ethic, marriage ethic, gender identity, gender roles, all these kinds of things. And there's a big litany of those that we idolize, that we we make the litmus test of God's veracity. And there are plenty, by the way, I named some there, that are contemporary issues, but I got news for you. There are plenty of conservative evangelical ones that are just the same. It's not about which side you fall on the issue. It is about making those issues idle and asking yourself this question. If I trust God, will I give it to him? If I trust God, will I give him my sexual ethic? Am I willing to do whatever he says to do with my sexual ethic or with any of these other things? Am I willing to give it up if He commands it of me? That's trust. And until you answer that question, you will not answer the others. And you will not fall on the right side of the issue. C.S. Lewis said this about this nibbling away. He said, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope 
soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. And I will add that it's those things in life that do not shout but whisper over time and change who you are. So it's great to say trust, to throw that at you and then send you home. But how do you do it? And I want to I give you something practical to think about. I want to I talk about our very liturgy of the kingdom, our personal worship that we call you to do, that we're seeking to do as a, as a congregation. Let me tell you how personal worship is supposed to work throughout the week. And let me just remind you and apply it to this particular thing. How do you, how do you develop trust? Let me tell you, you develop the habits and the rituals and the practices that build it and strengthen it. And if you think you can do that on your own without, you know, any effort, you think you're just going to trust God without building the habits and rituals and practices, try to lose weight that way. Well, just let it happen. Today I'll just eat right. See how that goes. So, personal worship. First day, when I stop to remember the king, when I stop to remember the king, I dwell in his glory, in his wisdom, in his precepts, The more I dwell in the mind and heart of God, the more I naturally gravitate toward His likeness and find true dignity. And the less confused I am about what is right and good in the world. When I remember God, I experience the depth of His beauty and His love. So I do that every week. When I stop to be honest with the king about myself, the pride that would expose me, you know the deal? Pride goeth before the fall. That's the King James Version. The pride that would expose me to a fall is tempered by the reality of my own struggles, my own shortcomings, my own finiteness. And I experience my need for God's love. So in remembering him, I experience his depths and beauty of his love. And in, uh, and in being honest with him, I experience my need for him. When I stop and I rest in His grace on that third day, I am set free from the self-loathing and the guilt and the shame that would cripple, paralyze, and overwhelm me. That would cause me to resign myself. And this is what guys do. Or at least this is what I do. To resign myself to God's displeasure with me and lose the vision of what I had always hoped I would become. And give up on it because I'm such a piece of garbage. I know I'm weak, and that's where it stops. But when I rest in His grace, when I experience the the power of His forgiveness, and I remember what Christ has done for me, I experience the power of God's love that sets me free. And then when I stop and I receive His instruction, I unlock the hope and the possibility of change. And I experience the blessing of His love. If I don't receive His instruction, I will not change. I've just guaranteed it. So when I do all these things and then I receive his instruction, I open up the possibility of change in me and I experience the blessing of his love. And then finally, when I do what he says, while I still might suffer the collateral damage or persecutions of the world, here's the deal. And this is what I can tell you as a recovering addict. I will stop creating my own negative consequences on whom I can blame no one but myself. And I experience the fruit of his love. 
You need that all the time. Those are the habits and practices and rituals that will make you trust in your God if you do them authentically and sincerely, if you make space for them. They're first. And then you will trust. And then all of your anxieties and your feelings of failure and confusions about right and wrong and all these things, guess what? They melt away and they are replaced with peace. So, I will leave you with this. Let God whisper to you every day in that still small voice that Scripture speaks of. And then do what C.S. Lewis says God does. Let Him shout at you in your suffering. But remember that it's His voice. And that you can trust Him. And that you can rest in Him. And if you do that, you will become like Him. Let's pray. Lord God, um, this is one of those look-in-the-mirror sermons. As every moment, every fiber of me struggles with trusting You all the time. Every time I act thoughtlessly, every time I act without consideration for Your wisdom or in direct rebellion of it, every time I do that, Father... I demonstrate my lack of trust. And I am so grateful, Lord, that you have even intervened in that by the blood of your son, Jesus. And then in my lack of faith, you have given me faith. You have saved me. So, Father, I pray for all of my brothers and sisters that you would unlock this mistrust, that you would unlock and free us, set us free from our mistrust. That we might become like you and rest in your grace. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.